uh, have your Bibles, um, I invite you to turn uh, in, our, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, what we're reading this morning. I'm going to be uh, reading out of the NIV this morning. Peter writes this uh, to the church. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. <clears throat> and we thank you for the way you came and lived and taught and showed us an example of how we can live in relationship with God. And then you died to make that possible. But not just that, you rose again to bring new life and to... Uh, start something new, even in the shell of the old. As we come this morning and open your word, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we ask this, amen. All right, let me start by asking a question. It's not a rhetorical question, I'd like some uh, response, some, some, um, and I'm not looking, the, the technical word, the big theological word is ecclesiology. That's our, our understanding, our theology of the church. I'm not looking for full-blown, like, uh, put it in the, you know, let's teach it in seminary thing. But what is the church? People. God's people, all right? The people that are following God, following Jesus, um, let me ask a another question. When we hear this word, or maybe think of uh, coworkers, friends, uh, people at school, when they hear the word church, do we generally assume that there are religious connotations with that word? Yes. All right. Most people, maybe they think of a group of people, probably they tend to think of a building. Um, I, I think I've said this before, I wish there was another word to use for the building. Um, in our English usage, we just kind of, we know that we mean the church is the people, but we often refer to the building as the church. And I'll say, I'm, you know, I'm, I have to run to the church. Whether there's anyone here or not, I say I need to run to the church. Um, in some of my, you know, more philosophical moments, I'll tell the boys, you know, like, well, what are we doing tomorrow? I say, we are going to be with the church tomorrow. Um, but I don't know. I wish I used it that way all the time, but I don't. To yeah, I go to, yeah, go to church. Okay, that works. Yeah, yeah, that works, that works. Um, 
you know, this, the building is a tool. It is a beautiful tool. Um, it's, it's, it's a gift, uh, but it's a tool. It, this is not the church. We are the church. And I would say in our world, in the 21st century usage of this word, people do tend to think of a religious group or maybe a sacred space. But in the first century, this word church was a little different. And for a moment, I want us to step back to the days of Peter and Paul and uh, the early church and see how they talked about church. In the New Testament, uh, the word for church, the Greek word, is ekklesia, and it meant an assembly or a gathering. It was uh, uh, about people coming together, and in the ancient world, ekklesia was not inherently a religious word. In fact, it was a secular word that was used to refer to uh, a gathering of citizens in a town to do civic business. It might be the word that we would use for like a town hall or uh, you talk about your township supervisors. You, maybe you have a, a township meeting that gathers to talk about the business of the neighborhood. And in the ancient Roman and Greek world, they would have called this an ecclesia. It was the elders or leaders of a town gathering together to decide how the town would do business and, and live life together. Uh, this is the word that uh, Paul uses when he writes to the Christians in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, he addresses the letter to the church, the ecclesia of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul uses this word here, but it's not the gathering that makes this religious. It's the fact that he says that it is of God. That's what makes this inherently religious. The early Christians began to see themselves as an alternative community that was living in the midst of old communities. They believed that with the, the resurrection of Jesus, there was something new happening. Even in the midst of the shell of the old world, they believed that something different had started with Jesus. And they sought to live out this new world. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And so the early followers of Jesus began to use all kinds of different words from the world around them and inject them with new and very upside-down meanings. The first word that we've talked about is ecclesia. It was places, uh, these places had a new kind of assembly in God with a new kind of people in Christ. And the way they conducted business, the way they cared for one another was different in the meeting, the assembly, the gathering of people in God. Another word that early Christians used was basileia. Say basileia. All right, good job. Now you know Greek, some Greek. By the end, you'll know almost as much as I do because we've got one more word, and that's about the limit of my Greek knowledge. 
This basileia was the word for kingdom or empire. It was used to refer to the Roman basileia. And Rome had no room for other basileias, other kingdoms or empires popping up inside their borders. But this is the word used in the New Testament to talk about the basileia of God or heaven, the kingdom, the empire of God. Another word that early Christians used was curios. Say curios. It has nothing to do with curiosity. It kind of sounds like that, but it's not curiosity. This was the word for Lord in Greek. In Rome, it was used of rulers and authorities. It might be used as kind of a a title that you would talk about Caesar, or you might talk a governor. You might refer to them as your curios. And yet, this is the word that the church proclaimed of Jesus. said, Jesus is our curios and savior. This is a, an inscription that was found in Asia Minor in 6 BC. And I want you to hear the language that is used. The most divine Caesar. We should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, when everything was falling apart, He restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor Augustus who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. Good news, does that sound familiar? In Greek, it's the word evangelion, where we get evangelize, evangelistic, talking about the good news, whole world beginning of good news concerning him. 6 BC. If you take out Caesar and replace it with Christ and take out Augustus and replace it with Jesus, it sounds downright New Testament. Why was the early church persecuted? Why did Rome feel like they had to get rid of these followers of Jesus? It's not because Rome had anything against a new religion. Rome adopted new religions all the time. They conquered another people. They took in their temples and their gods, and they just kind of threw them in with everyone else. We don't really care if you worship a new God. As long as you follow our rules, as long as you live the way we want you to live, we don't really care who you pray to. So they didn't really have an issue with a new religion. Rome doesn't persecute Christians because they think Christians have misunderstood Jesus. Um, Christians in Jerusalem especially faced opposition sometimes from the Jewish rulers uh, because they had a 
they understood Jesus as the Messiah, and, and the Jewish leaders were saying, no, this is not the Messiah, this is not the Messiah. Rome doesn't care about a Jewish Messiah. But Rome tries to snuff out the early church in part because it appears and it sounds like Christians are trying to establish or live out a new kingdom, a new empire of their own within the Roman Empire. And Christians have chosen some seriously provocative language to talk about their life together. New Testament writers had other words to pick from. Jesus didn't have to talk about the kingdom of God the way he did. There could have been other ways for him to talk about this reality. The truth is that the followers of Jesus did see themselves living in a new kind of kingdom. And Caesar Augustus was not the Lord and Savior of this new world. The early church talked and lived in new ways. And this is where we come to our scripture this morning. Out of 1 Peter. Let me read it again for you. But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. Uh, Peter is using Old Testament language here. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is talking to the early church. He addresses this letter in 1 Peter 1.1. He addresses it to the exiles, the people who are living separated from home. Later in chapter 5, he calls Rome Babylon. Babylon is the place in the Old Testament where the people of God were sent as exiles. This is the place they were driven from their home to go live in this new place. And, and there's other New Testament writers who like to refer to Rome as Babylon. When, whenever you see them talking about Babylon, it's not a good thing. This is the place that the people of God had been driven from their homes and forced to live. This is the place of exile. Peter refers to the church as this chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. Paul writes to the assembly of God in Philippi in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This language of living as exiles, as living as citizens of the kingdom of God, is throughout the New Testament. Even Jesus uses some of this language. He's, he's confronted by Pilate, and Pilate says, Are you a king? Are you really the king of the Jews? 
Jesus says, my kingdom is a different kingdom. My kingdom comes from a different kind of place. And my citizens, my people, they're a different sort who aren't going to conquer and kill and destroy like Rome or any other empire has done. The church was meant to be a different kind of kingdom. A different kind of world that was breaking in even in the remains of the old. So followers of Jesus are called to live differently and follow the examples of Jesus. And the early church lived this out in radical ways. They enacted health care and social safety nets long before Republicans and Democrats got to it. Right? The early church in Acts 2 is caring for one another. They are gathering together. They are eating together. They are growing together. They are worshiping. They are learning. They are being discipled together. And it says they were even willing to go and sell their possessions, sell their property in order to care for one another's needs. Somebody needed healing. They laid hands on them. They anointed them. They prayed for them. And they believed that God was going to do something. far more radical than anything America or European or Roman politicians thought up. It wasn't coerced. It wasn't enforced by a legal system. It was people giving their lives to Jesus and seeing that that meant a radical difference for the way they were called to live together. This past summer in our combined Sunday school, we had some conversation uh, about how we live in the kingdom of God now. How do we live out the kingdom of God now? While the kingdom is breaking in already and the church is meant to be showing folks, showing the world what it means to live in relationship with Jesus, and so they catch a glimpse of the kingdom of God, when we live as citizens of the kingdom, we are also waiting for the king's return to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. We live in this time where the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It's already started in Jesus' death and resurrection, and yet the fullness we still wait for. And so in the meantime, we are called to live as exiles and foreigners who take up residence in the shell of the old world and point to something new in Jesus. For me, one of the most helpful pictures of how I think about this is to live as a colonist of the kingdom of heaven. Colonists are people who are called to bring a little bit of the kingdom with them. Colonists in New England, when they came over, were expected to bring their culture, bring their values with them. You know, England, when uh, Great Britain, when it was you know, a world power, sent colonists all over the place to expand the rule and the reign of Britain. People were sent to uh, live out their values. Colonists of the kingdom of God are expected to bring the culture and values of the kingdom of heaven with them wherever they settle. 
So what does this look like? Well, allow me to use some of the early church's provocative empire language. I think we're called to raise up good citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That means make disciples. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples who value the things the king values, who live like the king lives. We're called to give allegiance to the king. That's what the New Testament calls faith, to love God, to love others. And we are to bear witness in word and deed to the good news message of the kingdom of God, not Caesar, his good news. Caesar's good news wasn't really good news. It says he came to bring peace to the world, but his kind of peace was like, hey, if I beat you and conquer you and take all of your land and possessions, then you can't fight back. Jesus' kind of peace is very different. Every society has practices and rituals that are used to reinforce the society's values on its citizens. Here in the United States, we see this. Uh, students, those of you that are in school, how many of you say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning? Say the Pledge of Allegiance? All right. You say the it's recited every morning in schools where children are asked to give their allegiance to the United States. Uh, how many of you have been to a baseball game or a football game where we sing the national anthem before? Yeah. It's sung at sporting events to encourage unity and pride of its citizens. <laughs> yeah. You know, our country has its holy days. We have July 4th, Memorial Day, September 11th, other days. There's a process for being assimilated as a citizen of the United States. It's called naturalization. So if you come from another country and you want to become a citizen of the United States, you go through this process. It includes background checks. It includes education. Uh, there's an English and civic test that you have to take. And then you are given the oath of allegiance. The oath of allegiance says this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will work for, perform work of national importance under the civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. In the church, we give our allegiance at baptism. We confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we die to ourselves 
and to the old world, to the old way of living, and we are born again into a new way of being and living. The early church had a process by which you became part of the kingdom. They had a two-year process of learning the story of Jesus, of memorizing the Lord's Prayer. It was a vetting process to make sure you were serious about following Jesus. We still do inquirers classes, membership classes. And we have baptismal vows. Those of you that have been baptized were given something similar to these words. Do you believe that Jesus is God's son and do you receive and trust him as your savior and Lord? Will you turn away from all sin and will you endeavor by God's grace to live according to the example and teachings of Jesus? Will you be loyal to the church, upholding it by your prayers and your presence, your substance and your service? Of course, the church has its own holy days. Advent to celebrate the the first coming of Jesus, but also anticipating the second coming of Jesus. We have Christmas where we remember that the word of God became flesh and lived with us. We have Good Friday when we remember that Jesus died for our sins and for the sins of the world. We have Resurrection Sunday when Jesus conquered sin and death. We have Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and ignited the church for mission in the world. And we have other practices that remind us of who we really are and where we really come from and the kingdom to which we really and actually belong. And tonight, in some of those formational practices, we will remind each other who we are. We will gather as one expression of the alternate community at Spring Creek. We will serve one another in peculiar practice of washing feet or hands to remember that our king conquers as a servant with a towel. That serving one another is the value of the kingdom of God. We will eat together because who doesn't love food? But it's more than just food, it's being together as the body of Christ. The early church met often to eat with one another, to be together. I love some of the heritage that we have in, as, uh, in the Church of the Brethren that um, some of the first ch- buildings, meeting houses that had kitchens with them was in the Church of the Brethren, not just for the potluck meals, but to prepare for love feast and communion. And we will break bread and drink from a cup together as we remember the radical sacrifice of our King. The church is meant to be a new kind of assembly, a colony, a a glimpse of the kingdom of God. The church's way of being Who we are, how we act is meant to be different. And so tonight we remember that there is an alternative community being formed in the shell of the old. And we are called as followers of Jesus to be people who grow. We are called to love God, to love others. We are called to proclaim a different kind of news 
that anyone is welcome to become a citizen of the kingdom of God to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Tonight, we remember that we are foreigners and exiles. Peculiar service, unique community, and radical sacrifice. These are some of the values of the king. And we will meet to do likewise. All of you that are in love and fellowship with Jesus and his church are invited to come uh, to love feast tonight and communion. And, and I'd love for the, us to have to set up new, more tables. I'm sure the deacons won't love it, but I'll just laugh and say this is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing to gather together to remember what Jesus did for us to remember his love poured out for us, his death and his resurrection, and how he calls us to be this different kind of people who follow him in radical obedience. May it be so.